My name is Kevin Hines. I jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. I believed that I had to die, but I lived. Today, I travel the world with my lovely wife, Margaret, sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. Now, we help people be here tomorrow. Welcome to the Hindsights Podcast. What is cracking, Hope Nation? It's your friendly neighborhood, Kevin Hines. Welcome to the Hindsight Podcast. I'm here today with my friend, Kelly Kruger, Sergeant and Inspector, NCIT member of the San Francisco Police Department, a wonderful friend and an amazing human being. Kelly, welcome. Nice to see you. Well, my goodness. Thank you. Thank you for all that sweetness. So happy to see you. So happy to see you. It's been way too long. We'll have to catch up afterwards as well. Um, yeah. But I want to start by asking you a few questions. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, if you could tell us about you, who is Kelly Kruger? Certainly. So uh, so I do work for the San Francisco Police Department. But the funny thing is, is uh, well, exciting for me is that I'm actually going to retire in July because I'll be 20 years in the department. And so I'm almost 60 years old. I turned 58 on April 1st. So what, what happened is um, I always wanted to do psychiatric work, actually. And I was a, a big sister. I, I did, uh, well, first I, I did the Red Cross. I was a volunteer with the Red Cross. And then I was a big sister and the big brother, big sister. Then I became a, a nurse and I worked at Napa State Hospital. And they, they put me, of all places, on an all men's criminally insane unit. So it was my first uh, getting a, a sense of the folks that have, have done criminal acts. But they were there because they had been found uh, guilty of the crime, but not competent because of their their what their mental illness. So I found that fascinating. But I still I, I ended up going into San Francisco and working at Mount Zion in San Francisco General as a registry. Got to work at all the other hospitals, but those were my main ones. And while I was at Mount Zion Crisis, I saw police officers bringing in. Uh, in California, they're called 5150s uh, Welfare and Institute. I saw officers bringing them in, and a lot of times it seemed like they they weren't always that comfortable with what they were doing. And I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. They they have the first contact, and maybe they don't they didn't get to get the training that would have been good for them to have for what they're doing." So I note I noticed that, and then why why I was there, they had research because it was a teaching facility with UCSF. And it was 80 to 85% of the folks that came into crisis either had a substance abuse issue or somebody significant in their life did. So I was like, I better learn about that. And that's how I ended up at San Francisco General uh, doing the, um, working in a, in a 30-day substance abuse program. I went and later worked at UCSF in the emergency department, but I came back to, I, I love, I love challenges. Like, um, so I keep on doing new jobs because I wanted to learn new things. And I thought, um, where could I, but where could I be a plus? And I remembered again about the officers and, and how they, they didn't, not all the officers uh, seemed that comfortable with dealing with the 5150. So I thought I could do a job where I would, I could help out because of my background and I would never get bored because there'd be new things to do and new assignments. So um, I ended up in my late 30s going into the into the San Francisco Police Department. Wow. 
<laughs> tell, tell us about that initial journey at SFPD. Well, um, you know, I, I, luckily I wasn't the oldest in my class, <laughs> but, uh, but it was, uh, it was doing the, um, academy was tough, you know, and, uh, I, I, I was always worried you, you had to do 80% or above. And I was always worried, like, uh, at each week you could end up out of the academy. And so I just had to be focused and intense about just learning every learning everything. And I got to do my uh, field training at Ingleside Station, which was a, a really great experience because that's a I'm, I'm sure I'm not going to say the politically correct word. It, it was it has the largest housing area, like Section 8 housing, that side of the Mississippi in the entire country. And it's called the Sunnydale. Now a lot of people have moved out, but it was it was a huge area and it was a really good for me. I thought it was a great experience um, to be in the heart of everything and, and learn stuff. And then I got it easy for a, a year probation over at the Richmond. It was because it's it's more mellow over in, in that part of the district next to the Golden Gate Park and next to the ocean. And then my final my final thing was patrol area was Northern Station. And that was great because it covered the entire city. So you had Polk and Larkin, where there's prostitution and drug stuff, then Pacific Heights, City Hall, where there's demonstrations happening all the time, and Lower Hate. So it covered a lot. But why was there, the department found out, you know, knew about my background and asked me if I would start being a part of our uh, we called it instead of CIT back then, police crisis inter- intervention training, and I and that's where I first got to meet you, Kevin, is um, being a part of that forty-hour class where we were teaching the officers, and um, and that particular program did such a good job that it it's re- was referred to in the penal code as the golden standard arson San Jose's for the forty-hour class. As time went on, they were like, we need to do more. Uh, they they looked at the Memphis model and they knew that they needed to um, expand it, not just have it be training, but have, uh, and then we'd have CIT officers and ideally have them respond. But um, thankfully down the road, they, they I was a unit of one for almost 13 years. I covered the entire city, uh, dealt with anything that came my way that, that had to do with uh, people with that were in distress or mental illness or under the influence. Uh, and, and so I was extremely busy. So they're like, okay, we're going to have a team. And um, so now I'm just, I'm just part of the team. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, so you became the psychiatric liaison for the San Francisco police department's crisis intervention team. And can you tell us in more detail about the work you did and why it was so important to you? Yeah. Well, um, Goodness, I, I hope that I can articulate it uh, for and, and properly. I have to say that um, it's really, really important. Uh, it, it means so much to me to be able to to make a difference. And I and I realize that for for me, because I'm I'm more of an action person. The way that I can most make a difference is one on one. The lion's share of what I would do, because San Francisco is a place where a lot of people come is, uh, it, of course, I you know I don't want to leave out the people that are born and raised in the city. I would do anything for them. But I would end up getting a lot of family members that were from out of state that just couldn't find their, their children and um, knew that they had come to San Francisco. 
a lot of times it would be like their first psychotic break or they were in a bipolar manic kind of thing. And um, they get a hold of me. I'd be like a little Tasmanian devil on figuring out where they were, getting them connected to medical, talking with the family. My, my, my thing is, is uh, just trying to help people when they're in a place that maybe they don't have the insight that they need help or that they're so overwhelmed with what's happening. So, so that would, I have to admit that was, that's my life cause. I never thought I'd get into training, but when they, when they had me start doing that class and to be able to teach people about an overview of, of things and how to handle things and the de-escalation, that did end up becoming a big part of uh, my, my joy of getting to teach. You know, I just recently had a case where it was a whole neighborhood that's been having a tough time with a person. I don't know in your podcast or if you've been reading, but with the COVID, people that have never had psychotic symptoms are having symptoms. And then the suicides, uh, it's just, it, things have been intense. And it's been especially busy with this business, you know, of how they're saying about having an unarmed response. I don't know if that was something you were going to ask in a little bit for police and, and how communities are asking they want to have an unarmed response and not have it police because they don't want it to end up into a shooting or someone being hurt incident. It's a really vicarious time of figuring out how can we help people because the, the clinicians and the medical people are going out there and people have weapons or they're being aggressive and hurting them. So a lot of them don't want to go there by themselves. So you have the higher up saying it has to be an unarmed response, but the people that are actually responding, sometimes they're not comfortable going by themselves. So that's like another big role that I do is I'll go to keep things safe. Well, we, we're all lucky to have you doing that. <laughs> Can you tell us more in detail, uh, go back and, and kind of explain for those who might not know it, what, yeah. what is CIT liaison, the CIT liaison program? specifically with SFPD, and then, and, then, and then at large for the country. What, what, what is CIT? Okay, so uh, thanks. It's, it's crisis intervention team, and, and it means a lot of things for a lot of places. What, what I think is important is that people need to make it unique for their city and what works for them. For San Francisco, we were really hoping, and we were very close before the unarmed response, we are going to work with mobile crisis, go out with clinicians. So right, right now what it is, like I said, vicarious, but um, so, so we're in charge of the training, our crisis center. So the officers, the advanced officers, uh, two sergeants that are doing the training, and they actually have an advanced training that is uh, really, really cool. They've just done an incredible job. It's, it's modeled after a Seattle program. So they get to do all of the training. Then for, for us is the, with the, the people that go out in the field, often it's family members that call us, ask us to go out to the home because uh, somebody hasn't left their bedroom for six months and the mom keeps bringing them food. Then there's the community that are asking because somebody is like disrupting or being inappropriate or aggressive or scaring neighbors. And they'll say, hey, can you, can you help, help with this? There's also a big factor of working with the community. The, the lieutenant of the unit is in charge of a, a meeting that has to do with all the community members so that we can have our ear on the ground about what people want. 
what we need to change, how we can do a better job. We need to have feedback about that. They get to be part of the review if there's a, a critical incident that doesn't go well so that everyone can have a word in on that, which is important. People want to know why we did things and, and how, we're, how we can do them better next time if it didn't go well. We're trying to do research. We're being very cognitive of any kind of use of force incidents and reviewing them closely so that we can make sure that that it's done differently as far as reviewing with policy, not just with the community. And then we just field calls. Officers call us a lot. Like, you know, I've gone to this house for five times and I keep doing the same thing. So clearly it's not working. Will you get, will you take it up another level kind of thing? So it's, uh, it's stuff like that. And, um, you know, my, my, my goal with it is always to, to get people to whatever it is that they need. And sometimes it's just outpatient treatment, or sometimes it's me um, listening to their story and know, and figuring out what services they need. And then I, I'll call them up and uh, I'll call up where they need to be seen and make a referral. It's everything under the sun. Wow. Well, it, it, it's really necessary and so, so incredibly needed around the country and especially in San Francisco. Tell so, us. Oh, go ahead. I do, do want to tell you, because you asked me about the other ones. I would say if I was jealous of any program, it would be the LAPD's version because they get to, they have clinicians in their staff and um, they have all di different units. They have units that, that do case management. So they can do long term like follow up stuff. And then they have like the crisis unit and they go out with the clinician as a team. So you have both sides. So the safety part can be evaluated. And then you have a clinician that does the handles the psych part. So they're really they're huge and they have like the dream team. That's wow. Yeah. Good to know. Tell us more about uh, the community stakeholders and the CIT working group. Okay, so um, there's a National Alliance of Mental Illness in there. Uh, there's there's people that are from the Mental Health Board that are just interested. So you can just be a community member that's there. They have somebody representing from the Department of Public Health. There's an advocacy program to make sure that people with illness don't have any kind of uh, negative things happen to them. So there's there's groups like that there. So anybody that wanted to be a part of it uh, gets to be a part of it. Fantastic. The SFBD began training officers in crisis intervention in, I believe, 2001. In your opinion, how has CIT made a difference in the work that you guys do, you all do, and what improvements would you make to the CIT to make it more effective? Well, um, yeah, I, I hate to use a cheesy term, but there's this expression called tools in the toolbox. For officers, we got a lot of feedback of just how much they appreciated being able to have more tools. And so one of the big things is we, we go over dual diagnosis and major mental illness and people under the influence so that they could have a better understanding. They know that they are not clinicians. They're not going to diagnose that kind of, but that really helped them. The other big thing is that we had subject matter experts come, including you <laughs> at one time, right? And that the most powerful thing of hearing somebody's story you know, we have to sort of put, we have to put up a shield when we put on their uniform. And I think probably people came up to you and talked to you about this. One of the most powerful things in the class was that people were, officers would be like, 
I would go to a scene and I would be a cop. Like this is, it's like us and them, we've got to take care of business. And then by having people come and tell their stories and it, and they could relate to them, they're like, holy crap. It, it like, it gave them a whole different uh, depth that they never had. And that was so powerful. So that was huge. The other thing was giving them the resources so that they know where they could take a person or who they could connect them with. They didn't even realize all the things that we have. We have a lot of wonderful programs in San Francisco. So they had no idea. The part that the part that I found the most frustrating is that we didn't we weren't able to do continuing education at the level, you know, so you, they get this great class. But, you know, programs change, um, policy change, case law change. We're not getting to do as much of, the, of that. And officers need to be on top of their game. So that's a tough one. But the other thing is, is that I have the team that I'm in is excited as I am to be a part of it. There's only actually three of us right now that can go out on this, that go out on the street. My Lieutenant can go too. So that would be four, but he's got so many other responsibilities. So it's a very small team. So you want to have people that are passionate about it, have a a bigger team doing that, right? So that, that everyone can be addressed. Cause for me, that's the most frustrating part. I, I hardly, I, I do a lot of extra free time every day because I'm dealing with human beings and I can't do it all in my 10 hour shift. So I'll just stay to make sure that I get stuff done that have, that I think is important to get done. There's never enough time with everything going on. Fair enough. So the San Francisco police department has been quoted saying their highest priority is safeguarding the life, dignity and liberty of all persons. Tell us a story about a situation during a crisis call that you are proud of or were happy with the outcome. So I do think that's definitely that's definitely our philosophy. Uh, I have so many stories, and this one actually isn't dramatic, but um, as far as an officer safety issue, but there was a lady that was on the street that was from out of this country. Everybody was taking her to the hospital over and over again. She had gotten so filthy that you couldn't tell the color of her skin and her clothes were tattered. I had people from the street coming up to me telling me that she was getting abused at night. I tried to talk to her and she was so not in touch with reality and scared. I mean, I'm not inside her head, but for whatever reasons, she was not in a good place. She could not tell me anything that was happening. So I was really upset that she was so vulnerable out in the street. So I I took her to the hospital it took three times of me being, again, like a little pit bull. And finally, we, they kept her long enough so that she could get to a place that um, she wasn't floridly psychotic. It turned out that she had run away from Canada. She wasn't in connection with her family. Her mom was extremely distraught. There was like this, this beautiful human inside there that nobody was even having conversations with. Uh, she got reconnected with her mom who thought she had lost her. Oh. And it's stuff like that, that just, you know. Wow. Well, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful turnaround to a story that started so in such turmoil. And- yeah. It was so upsetting. She, she was getting discharged, filthy, dirty with those tattered clothing because she insists on wearing those clothing. And it was just, it, it doesn't make logical sense. I love San Francisco because it's a life choice. Like people get to do what they want to do. But the frustrating part is that some, sometimes people are so fiercely protecting an individual's rights 
And if they're not well, how are you protecting them? That just really upsets me. What ended up happening as to why she was finally cleaned is that she got lice. So then she met, had a medical issue that had to be addressed. But it's like, why, why, does it, why did it have to go to that? So I, um, I have to say that's, that's where I, I understand about taking away people's rights and, and people feel very strongly about it. And I do too. But I just, I just don't want people getting raped and beat and dying because we're letting them have a life choice. It's like, let them, let a person be in the place where they can make healthy decisions for themselves and then hands off. I'm all for it, but it, I just, it just really upsets me. Can you tell us about a story or a situation during a crisis call where you would like to have seen a different outcome? What could have been done differently? It's a tough thing, and I definitely can tell you a story. So we we have a because of the, what's been happening and not having police make exigent circumstance. Um, I'm also a hostage negotiator. We should probably rename that because more often than not, it's one individual. So we had a barricaded individual that was distraught and had been doing methamphetamines, had been up for who knows how many days. We we tried to to reason with him as far as coming out and he went, he wouldn't come out and we're, we're standing by, standing by. And, and the boss's decision was to leave the scene. So that wasn't something that we ever did before. We would either go in or, or wait it out because a new case law in this country, we leave the scene. What is sort of funny, just to lighten the moment, though, is on two of the occasions when we left the scene, they were like, wait a minute, where are you going? And they came out. <laughs> so, so you never know what's going to happen. You know, so I find it concerning that, that we're willing to leave the scene. And uh, I would like us to have sort of work on improving how we handle things. I totally get not kicking in a door that someone has a gun, they point it at us, and then we shoot them after we try to save their life. I, I'm with you. That doesn't make sense. But uh, let's let's figure out how to do it in a way that they're not getting left at the scene. Makes perfect sense to me that, that that would be a priority. What advice do you have for anyone in law enforcement about handling a crisis that may not be taught in CIT? The biggest, the biggest advice that I have is if you can create some distance and take a minute, even though that may seem like a, a wild, ridiculous thing, you really, uh, that where people seem to, to make the most mistakes is when they just sort of go rushing in. And often, even if it doesn't seem like it makes sense, you can stop and look at, at what you're doing. And then and have a plan A, B, and C. I was uh, reading something recently, and they talked about when if you have that, that plan A and B in your head already, if A doesn't work, then you're already ready to roll on plan B. If it hasn't even occurred to you, and now you're in a critical situation and you're trying to come up with a plan, that's a lot harder to do. But in a non-law enforcement suggestion, what I always like to say to people is, um, when I was at that Napa State Hospital and I'm with, I was with severely mentally ill people. When I did that, I have to tell you, they could look right into my soul in a fourth of a second. And what I realized more than anything, and I don't mean to be cheesy, is you need to be authentic and sincere. And a person can sense that you are judging them or not being present in the moment 
when they're at, they're completely flipped out and you can't be present, that's going to make the situation a lot worse. And that's why I say stop, because what if I did come from some other call that was just as upsetting and my brain is, is still back there at where I was at 10 minutes ago. So I need to snap out of it and get in the moment and be present for that person 150%. And if I do that, that's how I can help them the best. Oh, Kelly, wonderful conversation with you today. Thank, oh, thanks. You, so, thank you so much for, for coming on. We greatly yeah. appreciate it and greatly appreciate your messaging and, uh, and the work you've done all these years to, to change lives. Is there one thing you would say, I, 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 I hope you can take us out and say one thing or a few things that um, you would say to the people that are on the other end of law enforcement, the people that are, that are, that are going through the mental trauma or mental health crises who need help, uh, what would you say to them if they ever become engaged with law enforcement? I have to say that um, I used to actually go into the jails on the, on the units that were the psychiatric units and talk with them. You know, we would just talk about where did you think the officer was coming from and what was going on? Kevin, please tell me if you think this is helpful. But what, what I found out is that they were shocked with how officers are scared. You know, they're, wor they're worried. We're trained to think that people are going to try to hurt us. I know that they're retraining us. But when I first came in, the, like the first month that you're in the academy, they show one video. And I don't think they do this anymore. But they'd show one video after another of officers getting murdered. So you're just like constantly, like every person, like, what are they going to do? Da, 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 da. As simple as this is, if they are able to just be cooperative with what the directions are of the officer so that they know that the, they can make the scene safe. When I say they, I mean the officers. If I feel like if someone's listening to me and I'm in direction, then I, I calm down. And then, then everything will go smoother. And I understand when you're having a tough time that maybe you're not able to do that. And if you're not, then you need to say to the officer what it is that's happening so that they know. Don't think that they're going to be able to figure it out. So if you're able to say, hey, I've had my worst day ever. I'm suicidal. I want to kill uh, my boss because he's a whatever. You know, express what it is that's going on. So that, so that they know and then they can assist best that they can. But if there's not conversation going on, they're filling in the blanks. Depending on the experiences that that officer is having, it may not be good on the filling in the blanks, if that makes sense. Fair enough. Kelly, thank you so much. We're grateful to have you. And, uh, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you. Margaret and I love sharing stories of people who have triumphed over incredible adversity. For more content and inspiration, go to kevinhindstory.com or visit us on all social medias at Kevin Hines Story or on youtube.com slash Kevin Hines.